Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello and welcome to today's uh, LSE public event on measuring the S in ESG, hosted by the Inclusion Initiative. We have a great lineup uh, from a few different time zones here today to help us approach, frame, and measure the S in ESG. I will introduce them, each one of them, just before I invite them to make their opening remarks. But before that, uh, a couple of things. Uh, Firstly, Dr. Grace Lawden, who we all know is the founding director of the Inclusion Initiative, or TII, here at LSE, is now also director of the brand new Growth and Governance Hub here at TII. This is a hub dedicated to the measurement of inclusion, not just uh, for producing academic work, uh, but to also impact shareholder decision. This is possible thanks to a generous donation from the Dunalingam family. As an advisory board member of TII, I want to express our gratitude for the support and our excitement about the work of this new hub. Secondly, some admin points. This event is being recorded, and the video and podcast will likely appear on our website shortly. Secondly, we have one hour in total. Feel free to uh, post your questions uh, using the Q&A function on Zoom. In fact, please do that as quickly as you want to uh, so that we can make this as interactive as possible. Don't wait till the end. Post the questions as and when they occur to you. Please also keep them as brief as possible. As you can imagine, I'll be scrolling them um, in real time. So I really want to be able to pick up the questions. All right. So now I think we are ready to start the show. Uh, We'll go alphabetically in the order of the surnames. And first up is Fred Brett Schneider, president of Libramax Capital, where he's also chair of the risk management and valuation committees and a member of the investment committee. Prior to that, he was head of global markets, Americas at Deutsche Bank. Fred, welcome, and your opening remarks, please. Thank you. Very uh, excited to be to be on the panel. And, um, you know, at, at Liebermax, we've been involved uh, in ESG for quite some time. We actually have a, a, green, a green fund focused on really the E in, uh, in ESG. So, Slightly different topic, but but very excited and um, looking forward to the panel. Thank you. So you've got a fund um, uh, on focused on E. Is it conceivable there might be one focused on S? <laughs> you know, I would say it's conceivable, yes. Uh, likely, possibly not. And okay. I imagine over the hour we'll go into this. It's just right. um, the E is a little bit easier to measure. Okay. Let's... Uh, uh, let's not give away any spoilers. So uh, we'll move on now to Andrew Cohen, um, Andrew, Executive Chairman, a Global Private Bank, and a Global Chair of Investment Banking at J.P. Morgan. Andrew oversees J.P. Morgan's private banks, institutional wealth management practice, and leads the partnership between the firms Investment Bank and Private Bank. What a cool job. Uh, Andrew, welcome, and your opening remarks, please. Thank you, Lutfi. Uh, pleasure, as per my previous uh, colleague, uh, pleasure and honour to be part of the LSE talk today. And Lutfi's an old friend. And we are, um, <clears throat> have had many uh, occasions to get together, but none quite like this. So I think, you know, really kudos to the LSE for putting on something. So it's correct. I am the executive chairman of the Global Private Bank. I sit in London um, and have been fortunate to work for this institution for three decades uh, in all corners of the world, uh, in Asia for nine years, in the US in the West Coast and then uh, in, in Europe and, and Latin America as well. Uh, 15 years on in Europe my last time and now now based in London. Um, so I know the event was postponed, so I'm really glad we can finally come together for this discussion today. Uh, it seems that everybody of the speakers is passionate. I'm sure the audience is too. Uh, for me, diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, which is a component of the S, as the people are referring to, in ESG, is something that we are very, very focused on at JP Morgan not only to better our own company, but also ensure that we are serving uh, our clients wherever we can and the communities that we that we engage with, right? Now, we have uh, two main 
uh, arms to JP Morgan in the United States. We have the Chase branch, which serves communities in all of the um, uh, lower 48 states, um, excluding Hawaii and Alaska. And then obviously the JP Morgan business I'm part of, which is the wholesale business, we try and engage in that. And hopefully that will come through today. Thank you very much, Lupi and team. Thank you very much. That sets the scene uh, very nicely, uh, Andrew. So let me next introduce uh, Ruben Donalingam, who is a board member of the Employees Provident Fund Malaysia and the Malaysia Productivity Corporation. He is the owner and vice chairman of Queen's Park Rangers Football Club. He's also a founder and board member of the Los Angeles Football Club, LAFC. And he serves as an executive council member of the Football Association of Salanga. Ruben, welcome, and your opening remarks, please. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Uh, like everyone else, I'm very excited to be here. Um, thank you, Grace, for setting all this up. You know, it's it's great. Um, we we started working with Grace about two years ago during the pandemic, and and we found uh, a niche, I guess, which which needed to be explored. And that's why um, from both my footballing backgrounds and also from the court background, which I, which is where, you know, which is the real business, to be fair, um, we decided that, you know, um, the S wasn't measured enough. I think there was a lot of measurements for the E and I think also a lot for the G, but, you know, the S seems to be, you know, tend to be left behind. And, and actually, there was a specific focus we started off with, which was um, actually race. Um, and I think there's a lot of measurements for gender already as well. When it comes to racial elements, people tend to shy away. And that's why we wanted something to actually measure race to begin with, uh, in all honesty. Um, it started because um, in football uh, specifically, um, there, there are lots of activities which try to measure um, how inclusive teams are. But in all honesty, there are many, many teams which claim to be inclusive, but in actual fact are not very inclusive. And therefore, you know, um, as a measure, um, we, can, we can finally decide who's actually truly inclusive and who actually is not. And I think, you know, for me, as also a general consumer, I would like to, to, to buy stuff and, and consume from companies which are more um, inclusive than those who are not, um, if I had the chance. And I think that's one of the key reasons why um, measuring this as for me as a consumer and not just as an investor is also very crucial uh, in terms of understanding where I want to put my money and who I want to give my money to. Um, so for me, I think this was why it all started during the pandemic. It was all through Zoom. It was actually quite fun with myself, Grace and Fiona, you know, trying to scheme through things as to how we could help the world. And I think this is what we came up with. Thanks. So I'm, I'm just glad to be here as well. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ruben, for your support and, and for your opening remarks. It really sets the scene, and you're right, it is a, a dimension that perhaps people do shy away from, and not just football, in cricket as well in, in England right now, that is a highly topical uh, issue. Uh, and, um, and I also can relate to the, uh, the increasing demand from consumers to want to have in the same way that we have um, labels on the calorie content and the sugar and fat content, why would we not want to know the inclusivity of the producers behind that? Uh, so I can relate to that. You know, in, in terms of race, I was um, on a panel in KL not too long ago, and they really took, uh, actually, this was now about six years ago or so, and they really took uh, care to make sure that it's racially diverse, um, but they forgot. It was just a you know, five-member panel, so they couldn't really have a female. Uh, they forgot that. And the poor guys got vilified, and they said, Look, we really took pains to make sure it's racially representative, but we really forgot that, so please go easy on us. Uh, so multidimensional inclusivity, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, that. Um, now on to Helen, Helen Krauss, who is a managing director at City. Uh, she's the head of data science insights at City Group and the EMEA head of data, uh, City Global Data Insights, CGDI. Did that get that right? Uh, okay. Helen has over 22 years of industry experience and leads the data science team that focuses on amongst other things, ESG insights. Helen, welcome and your perspective, please. Thank you, um, very nice to be here. So um, I'll just touch on uh, my um, industry background. So I've been on actually buy side as well uh, on the south side, pretty much a sort of equal amount of time. 
So that gives me an interesting perspective, you know, being able to see from the investment management perspective. And it was quite interesting that back then, a lot of uh, talks about SRI, um, you know, responsible investing and so on. And back then, that's like about 15 years ago, um, there was not really a big, big thing while people talk about that. I think a lot of kind of pushback was uh, on the performance side. But it's interesting to see that in the last five years, um, things have changed dramatically. So a lot more focus on ESG. Um, and that's also the reason why uh, our team has started to focus a lot on you know, how you measure ESG using alternative data. Um, and that's where we could um, you know, obviously talk about it a little bit later. But specifically on inclusion, uh, just to mention that um, we, we've been um, in the collaboration with Grace um, at LSD, um to look at inclusion index, how we think about measuring that um, and look at different ways of bringing that uh, more up to date. So, you know, you can think about the data side could just be, you know, ticking the box and say, okay, we, we have the equal opportunities, um, but are the companies really doing that on the ground? Um, so that's a topic that definitely is worth uh, having a, a serious look. And that's actually a, a quite a extensive research project that we currently have uh, with Grace. So yeah, so happy to share a little bit more details as we, as we uh, go along. Excellent. Thank you so much, Helen. So, the use of alternative data and uh, looking beyond the box ticking exercise to see if it really corresponds to what's happening uh, on the ground. And that brings us to Grace Lorden. Apart from being a director of TII and at the Growth and Governance Hub, uh, Grace is Associate Professor in Behavioral Science at LSE and author of the book, Think Big. Grace, how should we think about S in ESG? So I'm really fascinated about measuring the S in ESG because firstly, it is a socially responsible thing to do. I think it's, it's fundamentally interesting to think about whether or not employees are included in their place of work and whether or not people are actually taking steps to um, address diversity that they, they might actually be missing. But I think the second part of it is, is that inclusivity is actually good for business. So the idea that if I bring together people who have diverse perspectives, I allow their voices to be heard. And we have somebody who's the leader of that group bringing together those ideas in a way that's better for business is fundamentally really interesting to me. And, and you know, through the Inclusion Initiative and our work now in the Growth and Governance Hub, um, what we're hoping to do is really measure inclusion using data outside the firm, which Helen, I think, will speak to a little bit later, which is a joint collaboration with City. And also within companies. So for companies who might be looking at their diversity and thinking we're not necessarily leveraging the voices of all talent and they're observing this from the top, what can you actually do within the middle of the organization? And I think through measuring, fundamentally, we might actually see much more progress than we have in the last decade. So it's a win for people who care about social responsibility, but I think it's also a win for people who care about actually building better businesses. Wonderful. That, uh, that completes the first round of opening remarks, and I have follow-on questions for all of you. But let me start with Helen. Um, Helen, you're the, the data scientist, so we'd like you to really set the scene with... Um, well, first of all, let me, let me say this. You know the saying that what gets measured gets made and gets paid, but there's also the saying that not everything that counts can be counted. Is it really possible to measure the S in ESG? Uh, how do you do that? And are there some unintended consequences or side effects that we need to be mindful of? Sure. Thank you um, for the question. So um, I guess uh, not surprisingly, the short answer is yes, you can. Uh, but before I um, elaborate a bit more on how we do that, uh, let me just briefly talk about our ESG data journey. So we started to look at how to measure ESG performance outside of the company disclosure data back in 2018, um, because back then the reporting wasn't mandatory and often disclosures were inconsistent or incomplete. And that's when we explore alternative data um, and AI machine learning, which could help in informing us of how companies are really doing on the ground. So if you think about it, amounts E and S and G, um, S probably was the least covered and not well understood until perhaps the arrival of COVID-19. 
So the pandemic put a spotlight on companies' focus on employees' health and safety, working practice, and particularly in terms of how companies are addressing disproportionate impact on diverse groups, such as women, people of color, and also working parents. So specifically on measuring the S, you know, one can start looking at disclosure data, but I, as I mentioned, it's not mandatory. So you probably would not have the full coverage if you were thinking about uh, your investable universe. You know, that, that's a typical where a company published their policies surrounding social issues, such as, you know, if they have equal opportunity policies, um, if they provide some sort of gender pay gap analysis. And, and this type of data is useful, but it provides only a snapshot back in time and could be seen, as I mentioned earlier, as a ticking the box exercise. And to obtain a more up-to-date picture, and that's where alternative data comes in um, to the picture to fill the gap, um, data sources such as employee review sites and social media, for example, um, you know, Glassdoor and Indeed, can really reveal how companies are doing um, in reality with regard to diverse, uh, diversity and inclusion dimensions. And in addition, you can also think about news flow and could be an interesting source on social issues. And it's becoming also quite common to use AI machine learning techniques to scan uh, at scale into the news and also highlight the, the inclusion issues with the corresponding sentiment within those articles. So is this a uh, textual analysis? Do you look for keywords? Is that how it works? Yeah, you can look at uh, look for keywords. Um, there, there's obviously tagging you need to do and make sure that you have a taxonomy that, uh, surrounding those inclusion that you want to uh, capture. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you, you do need to do quite a bit of homework before you can then say, okay, I can model that. Um, but just an example, like, you know, if you see like a lawsuit um, being reported in the news, um, you know, fired by the former employees against unfair dismissals, that, that could be seriously damaging for companies' reputation. And that would also negatively affect the market perception about that particular company. And in a way, it's the kind of third party or impartial um, assessment of how companies are performing versus something companies disclose that's basically what they say they are doing. So we're seeing that kind of more and more um, on the um, investor side uh, where the two sides need to come together. So yes, we have the disclosed data from, from company where, where available, but quite often you want some sort of ground truth um, to help you understand whether a company is doing what they're saying they're doing, or maybe they're actually making improvement instead of waiting for the next um, round of reporting, which you come out annually, if that, um, then you have something that you could really measure and um, judge your investee companies uh, uh, based on that. And just talking about textual analysis, and we, we also use quite a lot of natural language processing uh, to look at reviews and, and social media where you can analyze um, these um, sources at scale, and you can derive a sentiment based on some NLP models available um, actually, quite a lot of uh, open source models, uh, they are quite good. The challenge, I will say, you know, you, you talk about difficulties uh, we might encounter um, is where you have to clean the data and prepare such data. You know, think about social media. You know, yes, it's interesting and potentially useful, but you also want to make sure you're looking at reputable tweets rather than, you know, so-and-so, somebody, housewife saying this and that, right? So that, that's the bit where we, we will need to do a bit of cleaning and also adjust the bias. Um, so things like Glassdoor, right? So if you think about a company review side, typically large companies tend to get a lot more reviews than smaller companies. So how do you adjust for that kind of size bias? Um, and also... Um, a bit of greenwashing that could be happening, right? So news might be reporting some PR campaign the company put out to create a very positive image surrounding their inclusion initiatives. So how do we, you know, kind of peel back and understand if there's any substance underneath the hood? And that's, that's the bit that we will have to um, address through the models and also um, the adjustment we have to make. And I think that that will be the main challenges or difficulties you would encounter um, if you were to go down the route. Right. And is it possible 
with the large organizations that have the resources to do that. You might even be, uh, you know, there's a bit of a cat and mouse going on. So, you know, the PR campaign goes in, you're cleaning the data, there's more coming out. Are we there yet where there's sort of second order thinking? Yeah, um, yeah, so we try to exclude any news articles that come out of PR, right? So if com- company makes some announcement and they get reported in the news, we downweigh those. We tend to outweigh, um, you know, kind of independent, uh, independently reported news um, surrounding those issues. So that kind of mitigates some of the noise, if you like. Um, right. Yeah, that, that's how we do okay. it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm breaking the rules. Can I ask you one more question before we move on? Okay, sure. <laughs> how do you handle PR that is not necessarily about themselves? but that is kind of virtue signaling. So I'm a company and it doesn't really cost me much to you know, ban a supplier for whatever reasons, but they only make up 0.01% of my supplier pool, but I, I get a lot of praise for having done that. So taking positive action that doesn't really cost me much, it's immaterial. I see a few of these now. Uh, it's a very special kind of impact washing, if you like. Is there any way to control for those? Materiality? Yeah, so materiality is an interesting one because we also think about, like you, you mentioned suppliers. So supply chain is another big topic of ours, uh, looking at how we see that um, sort of impact cascade down uh, to, say, companies' ESG rating and so on. Um, you're right, some company will be gaming the system by doing that. Um, but just to say that we tend to use multiple sources, so we don't rely on a single source. So yes, there will be some noise, and that's something that we can't avoid. I mean, unless you really kind of go deep and say, okay, I'm just going to exclude this and that. Um, otherwise, um, because we, we get other sources to help us understand the, the S performance of the company, um, and that's where we could say, um, you know, at least we have something, it's more, um, so we say, more grounded um, on multiple pillars, rather than just rely on one single source. Got it. Thank you, Helen. Ruben, if I could come to you now, uh, listening uh, to Helen, uh, you know, yourself as the CEO of a major company, do you believe that a measure of inclusion is something that shareholders care about or should care about? And, and if so, why is it for social justice reasons, or is it because there's a link to productivity? What, what's the value here? Well, I think it has to be both. Uh, like Grace mentioned earlier, you know, it's not just about um, productivity. I think there has to be some social element to it as well. Right. Um, I'll come back to that. But I think from a productivity perspective, um, definitely I think it helps you know, anyone if they're more diverse or more inclusive. Um, you know, maybe not so much the direct productivity of, of an individual, but, you know, collaborative productivity when you need to innovate or when you need to find new sources of business. I think, you know, having a more inclusive environment there will create a lot more opportunities and more creativity when it comes to, to those kind of things. And in general, I think going forward, looking at the younger generations, um, the more inclusive your company is, the more likely to, you are to get better talent as well. Right. So, I think from that perspective, it's also going to be a big boost towards productivity. Um, and and it, it's probably, you know, with regards to, as I said earlier, you know, with regards to consumers, um, if, if consumers are going to be driven towards more inclusive companies, if we can measure them, and, and I think from that perspective, um, you know, sales will be going towards companies which are more inclusive. And, and, and from that perspective, we will have, you know, uh, and that might lead to those companies becoming more productive as well. But the social element, I think, is also very crucial. And for me, um, as I said earlier, why we got involved was more about the social element, to be honest, uh, and not so much on the productivity element. And, and my, um, how do you say, um, ulterior motive for this, you know, like many other things uh, in the world, um, the, the, the business side starts to get on it first, right? Um, for example, just like the E, I think the business side got on the E a lot. I mean, of course, the... Consumers side tried to do it in a very big way, in, in, a, in a small way before, but they didn't get very far. And then suddenly when the, when the business side starts to do it, it becomes mainstream almost. And, I, and I'm hoping also from a from an inclusive perspective, um, although uh, there's a lot of inclusivity, you know, starting out in the, in the consumer space right now, I think once the businesses start doing it and start measuring it, 
and, and you start living in places where it's not it's not cool to be racist, then I think you know that might spread out to the rest of the world as well. So, so hopefully, you know, from a from a social justice perspective, you know, we can. I'm not saying we can, we're going to end racism by doing this, but hopefully one day, you know, 50 years from now, that you know, racism doesn't become something we all talk about anymore, right? So, 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 you know, but it is a huge problem right now. It's a huge problem here where we are in the UK. It's a huge problem in Malaysia where I come from. It's a huge problem in many, many countries. It's just different degrees of racism that, that's, that's there. And that's why, for me, having something like this, pushing the agenda for this, hopefully will, will result in some change for productivity and business, but hopefully also because it gets talked about more often and not taboo and, and pushed to the side, um, hopefully it then becomes, you know, more, um, you know, it, it, the whole world becomes more inclusive as a result. So, so I guess, you know, it has to be built both you know, social and also productivity side. Are you, are you not concerned that this could become controversial? You know, is this, is this a racism index? We go around telling companies you're 7.5 on the racism scale and you're, you know, 4.8. Should it become controversial? You know, I think racism is a big issue. And I think that's the whole idea. I mean, we're spending money here to make it controversial, to make it a big issue, right? I mean, at, at QPR, I think we are one of the most diverse clubs in the country. Um, and yet there were people who were accusing us because some people didn't want to take the knee for, for Black Lives Matter about a year and a half ago that we were not inclusive. And the ones who were accusing us of being non-inclusive had board members where everyone was of a certain race, a certain um, gender, and a certain age group. So, you know, um, how diverse were they? But, you know, because they were louder than us, it seemed as though, you know, they were more inclusive. But the truth is, they were not inclusive at all. And we were actually very inclusive. So I think that was, you know, as I say, one of the sparks towards who's really inclusive out there, right? And, and who gets to call someone else non-inclusive? You know, and, and we can't really measure who really is and who really isn't. And I think that's why, you know, and, and everyone, you know, when it comes to gender, everyone seems to be okay to speak about it. Now, I mean, maybe 20 years ago, it was not, a, it was not as easy to speak about gender um, equalization before. Um, but, but today, it's, it's very easy. But, but race is still very, very, you know, people just don't want to talk about it. And I think the idea is to try and make it controversial so people do talk about it and people, you know, get to address it up front, right? So... You know, so, so I think that's the whole idea, to try and make it controversial. I love it. We want to make it a big issue is, is a great quote. Uh, thank you, uh, Ruben. Fred, um, I could come to you now. Should a, uh, so do you think this should be created? Should there be a credible measure of inclusion slash exclusion at a company level? And if so, will it be of any use to institutional investors such as yourself? So, so the answer is, do, do I think there should be a credible measure? Absolutely. Um, do I think it's a difficult thing to get done? Yes, difficult, but not impossible. And, and certainly, you know, we're a relatively small organization, but we try and measure our inclusion. And, you know, you can do that through surveys, through trying to track microaggressions to you know, doing specific events to tracking employee turnover. So I think it is possible to do it. Um, and I think it's absolutely necessary to do it. And, and I think the investing world would appreciate that. Do I think investors would pay up for it? So in other words, if you had a credible measure of inclusion and one company rated higher on that scale than others, do I think people would be more eager to buy the debt of that company at cheaper levels? I think the answer is unequivocally yes. Um, it makes perfect sense. You know, surveys have shown that, you know, a more inclusive organization makes better decisions, um, has better employee retention, better morale, lower turnover, all things that make you a better organization. So it comes to reason that you should be willing to pay up for that company's debt and you should be willing to you know, pay a small price for some for a better organization. So I think generally it's accepted that a higher inclusion score would result in a better organization. I, I think most people get that. I think the issue is convincing them that there's a credible inclusion measure and that it can be trusted and that the data is not particularly noisy. So I think that's the biggest challenge we have ahead of us. You're on mute. Sorry, I'm, I was on mute. Uh, so, desirable but difficult 
is is what you're saying. And I guess the proof is in the put of the pudding is in the eating. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I would say very desirable and difficult, but not impossible. I, I think we'll certainly get there. There may be several iteration iterations of it, but but I think certainly doable. Do you um, do you have a view on whether the recent emphasis on DEI, uh, particularly in American institutions, perhaps in response to some of the high-profile incidents that we've seen in the news, have those been sincerely pursued or have people been trying to game it? You know, it's like, it's like everything else. I think, I think the majority are sincere. Uh, there's absolutely some gaming involved, just, you know, as, as with every, you know, any sort of venture or anything new. I think people's efforts are sincere. Um, I, I think it gets lost in the, anytime there's a large effort, the, the urge to game is so strong, even amongst otherwise well-meaning individuals. So I would say most of it is sincere. There's definitely some gaming involved as well. Right. Thank you for that, uh, Fred. And um, I'd like to come to Andrew now, but let me also just acknowledge that the questions are coming in thick and fast, which is great. Uh, please, uh, the rest of you, if you're not asking a question, if you want to upvote the ones you want to see answered first, uh, that'd be great. And please keep the questions as short as possible. Andrew, similar question to you, but from your vantage point, um, would some independent measure of a company's state of inclusivity be of use to your clients in wealth management or investment banking? Um, absolutely. I think your collection of panelists have, have articulated this incredibly clearly. I'm coming from the standpoint of a global perspective and also a very, very diverse firm with, with multiple different things that we do. But we always want a credible measure of inclusion um, as to what we ensure. That, and that really goes to the whole talent pool. Right, so I'm I'm going to focus on this from talent. I think it's probably a good point to acknowledge Grace and the fact that the LSE has has a leadership position in inclusion. This is an absolute fundamental change that we've seen, not for the last two years, to your point on what's going in the public uh, sort of world, but what the directionality of, of all businesses and particularly finance has taken. Um, so we feel as a firm, this is our firm, by add adding value by offering diverse perspectives. Um, and that starts with having the people around us that are different, different diverse perspectives. And I really like what, what Ruben said. It's not just the colour of your skin um, or your gender, but it could be your race or your religion, your sexual identity preference, uh, maybe you're questioning that, uh, or disabilities, right? All of those things have to be included in thinking about that diverse perspective because our client base is like that on the other side of the table now. And um, both internally, culturally, as well as clients, everyone wants to have access to the diversity of thought and opinion and diversity helps. And I fully agree with Fred that I think it's being gamed. But those people that are not, I prefer to have the gamers, the people that are just excluding it altogether because that world is going to finish up in a very, very narrow band. Um, I'll talk to the United States for a minute, even though I sit in London. 2045 is the date when the United States becomes a, minor, a majority minority meaning we will have more minorities collectively than the majority of, 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 of white people. Uh, if you're in any sort of branded business, whether it's services or a consumer product, and you're not addressing the majority, obviously you're going to have a smaller pool um, of opportunities to, to facilitate it. And it's exactly the same in the services business. So why is diversity and inclusion so important to us? And it's three, three broad reasons. One is just talent. The war for talent that we have is so focused on diversity that if we don't, have the right tools to attract that diversity, somebody else would. And that leaves to higher retention rates for other employees. People want to be in a diverse environment. Obviously, those diverse employees want to make sure that it's not all people um, you know, looking exactly the same or sounding the same or the same gender. Wall Street used to be very white male dominated. Couldn't be further from that now. So it means that employees feel that they're in a comfortable and inclusive, but most importantly, safe environment, safe to you know, do simple things like their own clothing or their own facial hair or the way they bring their food to the, to the cafeteria or what they order and so forth. Feel safe. Second is innovation. Um, diversity is, is highly linked to innovation in our view. 
you only have to look at Silicon Valley um, and uh, places like Tel Aviv and Stockholm, where it's not Swedes or Israelis or Americans providing the technology inputs with people from all over the world. I would say the same pre-pandemic for Shenzhen um, that's been blocked, nothing to do with racism or lack of inclusion, but purely due to the pan pandemic. Um, and that allows us to solve problems faster and also elevates performance. And thirdly is reputation. And this, to me, is, is absolutely critical. I mean, we're very proud of J.P. Morgan of a 217-year history. We want to continue that. Our consumers of our retail products, Chase, and wholesale clients, they want to see a diverse nature and environment that, that, that we're linked to as a company. Um, and they're going to consider an organization that they believe has ethical value. And I, I was shocked recently. I was part of a, a pitch for a significant piece of business from a very, very large uh, European entity. Uh, we put the best team of five we could we, 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 we could find. We felt that we had intellectually a great offering. We felt that um, the data pack we put together and what this particular piece of business was looking for, and we were successful. And when the chairman of that group called me to say we were successful, he said, all those things that I just mentioned, he said, but you know what the real, the real clincher was is that you brought three women out of five. Up until that point, I hadn't even considered we had three. I just considered we'd had four. My four colleagues were the best we could find, and I think that's a, a that's a, a great metaphor for you know how the world has has moved on. So I hope that answers the question. That does answer the question. Thank you, Andrew, for a very comprehensive answer to that. Wow, twenty forty five. So first five years before. We hit net zero on the emissions front. Uh, we will have a majority minorities, a minority majority in the U.S. Grace, um, <clears throat> an efficient market economist might say that if this was worth doing, it would have been done anyway. Why is it the case that the S of ESG is usually discussed in narrative terms as opposed to uh, why is it not so common to measure it? Well, I think for the efficient market hypothesis mark, I would give to that the principal agent problem, which I think ultimately is the reason why we don't have Fs organically within companies and also why we're not necessarily measuring it. So if we start, why doesn't it happen organically? And if you follow the kind of classic principal agent case, I think it's already been said that diversity is good for business. So if I'm working for a company and I want to create, I want to innovate, I want to assess risk better, it's probably a really bad idea for me to hire four or five people that are just like me or four or five people that resemble me so much that I would call them close friends. Yet we do see this happening. I mean, you know, we're here in the UK today, so I won't comment on the government, but it, from the most senior leaders in society, we do still see this happening. And I think fundamentally, it's really hard to police whether S is happening within a company's walls. So whether people are being inclusive, whether they're hiring beyond their own networks, whether they're hiring from diversity. And without hiring for diversity and being inclusive, you don't necessarily get business gains. So I think when Helen was talking, um, everything she said is spot on. And that's exactly what we're trying to measure is the dynamic of whether within a company's walls, is there inclusion in a way that's actually good for business? And secondly, are people actually hiring diversely? Um, if we think about the E versus the S, and I will say when we talk about inclusion, it also captures parts of governance, right? So if I'm working in a company where I'm being bullied or I'm being excluded, that's a governance issue rather than, rather than an S issue. But if we take the E versus um, S, I think the E has been very fortunate to have some heavyweight behind it. So in many countries, we have governments that are pressing for net zero. I know up to, I'm pleased for people who are here to hear about the environment, don't write negative things to me in the comments. Up to two years ago, I had a four by four car. And when the tax incentives came in, I switched to being electric. Um, and that really was because of the government policy. And we do see much more demand for E because the government policy is here in the UK, as well as just being a good person. Um, I think next to that, the funds are doing an awful lot of work. So lots of pension funds will actually press for companies to be green and to be better behaved. And that has knock-on effect of the companies within them. Um, I was asked by um, a group of journalists about a year ago um, whether or not my pension was green. And I logged on and I could tell them, yes, it was green from what the pension company tells me. But in that year, I've looked at 10 different indices, including one 
of the pension that I'm actually talking about, and they have really low correlations. So I think the E indices that are aggregated from multi-dimensions of E have some of the similar problems that we're talking about today with S. Um, but what I will say is I think the work that's being done on E We've learned with on, on, on the S. And I think for the last part of the S, given that we're at the very kind of starting ground, really, I think what Helen and I are doing is extraordinarily innovative. And what we would love is for other people to try to kind of get into creating S indices so that we actually progress the field at a much faster rate. Thank you. Grace, when you said correlation, uh what was the correlation issue you mentioned? Yeah, so if you look at how people actually measure it, the E in the aggregate, so taking across multidimensionals, and if you look just at very simple co correlations across those indexes, so some of the major indexes have correlations that are less than 0.3. So in some ways, that would say to me actually that we, we don't yet know who's measuring E properly in the same way that we don't know who's measuring S properly. The good thing for people who advocate for S is that there's a direct line to productivity, to profits and to innovation, um, which again, if we think about it from a pure investor perspective, would make focusing on S possibly much more worthwhile than E. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Great. Thank you. Let's take some questions. We have about 20 minutes. We'll take questions from the Q&A box. And I'm going to at least initially go with the, it's a bit like Eurovision Song Contest. So coming in with 12 points, uh, we have Annabel Illingworth. Uh, the question is, can you expand on the current landscape around taxonomy or indicators for us, especially ones which could work across the board? Who is leading in this or doing it well? Mm -hmm. I, can, I can kick off, Luffy, if you want. Um, I think, Annabelle, it, it, the, the majority of the indicators that are capturing the S in the way this conversation has been speaking about it, so inclusivity, so kind of moving away from safety and other aspects of the S, really focus on diversity. So they count the women, they count um, people who are non-white within UK organizations, for example, the FTSE 100, and they basically make an assessment based on the diversity. I don't know anybody who is capturing S beyond two indexes that are using surveys within companies. And then all of the conversations that we've had around gaming um, so far in the, in, so, so far today come into play. So the idea that if Luckfee is running an organization and I ask for a particular measures on a survey, that there are big possibilities of gaming that subjective, subjective data. So the two things we're relying on are diversity, so counting people, um, or, or the second is to rely on survey data. And that's only two providers that, that, that I know of. Helen, would you like to... Uh, add to this? Yeah, so I mean, we talk about review sites and, and so on. And then in terms of taxonomy, yeah, of course, it, it's quite, um, I, I'll say, quite taxing to, to get everything right. Um, but if you talk about like, um, you know, counting the employees and so on, you could also think about, you know, I guess, majority of people would have LinkedIn profile, right? So you can you can do it the other way rather than kind of focusing on the individual. I might say, okay, I, let me look at Citigroup across the entire LinkedIn universe, you know, what, what sort of numbers are, are we seeing in terms of female uh, representation, ethnic minority representation, and so on. So that, that is a cleaner way, if you like, to do that. But if you're talking about review side, just specifically on that, um, yes, yeah, so you do need to think about, okay, what are, are we trying to measure? Is it about gender? And, and what are the variations or different ways of saying the same thing? Are we talking about multinational? Are we talking about, um, you know, do they make a in inclu inclusivity kind of um, statement? Or, you know, when we're looking at the reviews, quite often people say, oh, you know, I feel not valued and there's some discrimination going on. That, that sort of words we pick out are positive and negative. And that's where we can then build up. Um, it's almost like a bag of words or taxonomy that a lexicon, if you want to call it, um, to, to be able to say, okay, these are the words associated with 
inclusion and typically is the positive or negative. And then we also use um, some other um, kind of data science techniques that are using something called a knowledge graph. So build a, a neural network where you can link all these terms together. So, you know, if you say, okay, I'm talking about this specific terms of inclusion, um, what are the association um, companies have to, to that? And that could be built upon, you know, using news. We can also look at how you can take in review data to build that connections. So think about it, if people are not familiar with the concept about knowledge graph, think about you, you do Google search, right? You type in a term and then you, you get a list of the results coming back. So behind the search basically is the knowledge base and you can say, I see this particular new source into that. I can see different other data sources into that and help you build the connection. Effectively, is there a lot of connections surrounding um, those terms. So you can use that to help you also identify what would be the, the right taxonomy to, to use. Um, so in terms of who's leading, I would say, like Grace mentioned, we are doing something quite innovative uh, in, in our minds, so or I don't think we, we have come across anything. So um, like what do you we're not doing. use, for example, S&P Global or Refinitiv? You know, they have these, uh, I think Refinitiv has a four-factor um, a set of labels. You've got workforce, human rights, community, product responsibility. S&P Global has workforce diversity, safety management, consumer engagement, and communities. Would you do you not think these are granular enough for what we're trying to achieve? We do take those into account, but I think it's broader. So you know, when you talk about inclusion, yeah, the, those things that you mentioned, the S&P has, yes, they are important. But on top of that, we also wanted to get us a more nuanced version uh, of that. So that's why we kind of dig deeper into review site um, and, and so on to try to get more ground up assessment, how people really feel when they are working in the company, um, rather than, you know, like those, those are the things that you mentioned. It could also based on uh, just looking at a company disclose information. And yeah. as I mentioned, that, that is kind of subject to quite a bit of potential greenwashing and things like that. So that's why we try to, yes, we take that into account, but that's a kind of small part right. of that. Yeah. Right. So um, can I just add a little bit there? Um, you know, I think um, when it comes to, to, to measuring diversity, I think one of the key problems is also uh, it, it changes from place to place, right? So what is diverse in the UK is not the same as what is diverse in, in say, Asia. So, so I think that's one of the key complex parts about trying to measure diversity as well. You know, I think when it comes to gender, it's probably slightly easier uh, because, you know, those are, are, are similar in, in, well, at least a lot more similar uh, between place to place. But I think when it comes to, to, to race or religion, it's very, very different. So what may be considered diverse in one place is, is completely not diverse in another place. So I think that adds you know, a bit more to the complexity as well. The question from Michael, does S stand for inclusion? I thought it was social, he says. The inclusion is an agenda is obviously important, but social is broader than that, surely. The answer is yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, the S definitely is, is social and social, to, to Ruben's point just then, it's culturally social because we have so many differing inputs um, in all the regions of the world. And I think we also have a social issue of uh, age. Um, as people get older, they get uh, typically more attached and conservative to their ways. The younger people want to explore more. And um, the, the influx of this um, with all its downside, it's been incredibly positive for the S side because young kids, I was talking to somebody this week who'd grown up in a very, very rural part of the United States, didn't even have a conception of what Los Angeles was. He knew it was a city. He knew that Disneyland was there when he was at, at university, but never had visibly seen a picture even in a book of Los right. Angeles. Today, anybody anywhere in the world could see Los Angeles, London or any other city. And I think that part of S is so important in the ESG debate. Uh, the fact that the future generations coming through are going to be guided by a lot of the decisions we make, whether in our businesses, whether in the academic world or in the political world, but they have a big, bigger opportunity than we've had to understand each other. Right. Uh, it probably answers the next question I was going to, to look at, which is, are we not missing the, the aspect of S, which is beyond just employees, 
uh, looking at local communities and supplier bays. Um, are we going to be looking at that, uh, Grace, in this um, index? I, th I think the answer is yes. So I think Helen spoke specifically to the index that we were building together um, in answer to a previous question. I think the S and ESG obviously takes into account what people are doing in the communities, how they are managing their supply chain and a number of other factors. Um, I think that there are gains to taking the perspective that Helen and I and the rest of the team are to looking within diversity and inclusion specifically and the link towards productivity um, and earnings as a way to motivate investors. But separately, I think that there's lots of space in this market for other people to measure the other aspects of S um, and, and in, including the ones that you just, you just said. Question from Ekaterina says, would it be possible for any of the speakers to share on the screen a list of typical S parameters being looked at within ESG or refer us to some kind of a list that we can get a big picture, bigger picture of what we're talking about. Any suggestions where people can go? I think that would be a, nothing for the screen today, but if whoever asked the question wants to subscribe to our newsletter, those type of things are routinely sent into their inbox. So yes, I think that's the best, the best way to proceed. And to subscribe to that, it's at the TII website. Yeah, yeah. Sasha, who's on, um, in, in floating around in the green room, can put it into the, into the chat. Great. Thank you. Okay, now we are going to uh, points that are further down. So uh, I'm taking a question from Paul Lee. Paul says, we need reporting on S that's capable of being aggregated across portfolios. Two such metrics that have come up, uh, have so far come up. One, number of full-time employee equivalents, and two, the proportion of them that are paid enough uh, to live on um, uh, in dignity, local living wage. Can the panelists identify other useful metrics that can be aggregated in the same way? Do you want to shoot? Do you want to choose somebody, Luffy? Um, no, I. You know, anyone who feels comfortable uh, answering. But I would have thought that the two that I mentioned, the Refinitiv and the SNP Global Indices, that I look at quite often at a company level, they are meant to be comparable certainly within a single sector. So they score you relative to your peers in the sector of the industry that you're in. It's not very clean, but um, as in, you know, it, de it depends on how you've put the boundaries of your, of your industry. Uh, but, and that is why you had, for example, Elon Musk complain about why, you know, he was dropped out and Exxon was in it uh, because the peer groups are different and they were looking at two different things. Um, so, Paul, for the moment, I will suggest Refinitiv and S&P Global. If you want to drop me an email, my email is on the LSE website. Maybe we can talk about this. Um, I guess the other thing I would add, Luffy, is to encourage Paul to look at the annual reports. So annual reports from companies will say things that they will do in the future versus things that they're actually um, versus things that they've done in the current year. And, I, you know, a useful mapping is to think about what are they saying that they'll do in 2022? And then looking in 2023 and saying, saying, did they actually keep their word? And that's a way of proxying inclusion in a very, very rough way, but also taking into account virtue signaling, which is, which is quite helpful. So do, does what I say in one year map the actions that I do in the future? I see. Great question. Yeah, sorry. From an inclusivity perspective, um, we've now had to start measuring and reporting how many, you know, from a gender perspective, how many men and women we have uh, in the company. So I think most companies will have to start doing that as well going forward. And that's, that's something which is very easy to compare as well. So, um, and, and I think it's hard to hide the noise behind actual numbers specifically. And I think that could be used as comparison, especially from the gender perspective. Right. And, and, and there's, there's two things to think about, Luffy. So there's what Paul wants to do, this broad portfolio of companies where we measure inclusion across a, you know, a, a big range and then there is possibly what Fred is interested in, where you might be interested in it for one, two or three companies, a small number. And if you're only interested in it for a small number of companies, it's actually easier to measure inclusion because it's easier to get much further into the weeds about specific companies to, and, and, and find out things about them. It's easier to take their data um, and it's easier to actually gain an edge that way. So everything isn't about speaking to portfolio investors. If we can speak to individuals who are putting large stakes in companies, I think that's quite useful too. And that's actually an easier task. Right. 
Um, I'm going to start. On, yeah, please. Sorry, I just want to add that, yes, you know, we talk about a kind of basically company reported metrics. And, but I guess the main point also is that the fact that alternative data is helping us to assess company on equal footing, right? So, so we talk about review data or we talk about news articles. And those are the things that you could measure across the stock universe. And yes, we do need to take, take into account the kind of sector um, inherited biases, right? So, you know, in tech and sector, you probably tend to have more male than female, perhaps. And then, um, you know, these are the things that we do need to take into account. But I just wanted to highlight that in addition to company reported items, which can be um, sourced and looked at on an annual basis, there are other providers out there now uh, looking at them much more frequently. So we, we ourselves use uh, AI ESG data provider who measure uh, diversity and inclusion on the sing, you know, every single day by looking at uh, over 100,000 data sources. Um, and then they map that to, and I think somebody asked about the, the ESNG, we use uh, something called SASB, SASB Materiality Map. And so SASB stands for um, Sustainable, Sustainability Accounting Board, um, um, Reporting Board. Yeah, and a standard, and then you you can see the the way they structure E and S and G, and so within that, you know, they have twenty six um, categories, and then w with that uh, social side, especially um, you know, in terms of uh, diversity and inclusion, this particular vendor we are partnering with, basically, they can um, measure a company, every single company within their stock universe, which is like almost twenty thousand companies on an every single day basis. So right. it is possible to do that. Um, but yeah, it will be a combination of disclosed data and um, this more kind of AI inferred um, data source that we use. Right. So we're coming towards the end of our time. There's still quite a few questions here and they're all excellent, excellent questions. Uh, and I guess these are questions we will be dealing with. In fact, that's why the center was put up in the first place. So I hope You'll all subscribe to the newsletter and stay engaged with the center. I'm going to combine two questions into one as our last question, which is, on the one hand, um, there seems to be a backlash um, from more conservative stakeholders around you know, ESG and inclusion and all of these you know, progressive things. Uh, what do we think of uh, the backlash on the one hand? And on the other hand, a simple question, how do we avoid wokeism, whatever that means? Well, I'll make one quick comment. We focus a lot on the S and the E is obviously critical and you know, you've got a great backdrop there. I, Singapore. I think, mm -hmm. so I think it's the, the botanical gardens in Singapore. Um, Singapore is a great example of getting the E right. But the G is something I think we have to be much more focused on. Without, you know, real governance and real structures and real learning of systems, whether it's in a family home, small company, business, local council, obviously large corporations and, and governments, we need good governance, right? Because governance allows a fair and equitable system to be translated into real dialogue, translated into uh, easily understandable um, conditions set on a community or a family or whatever it may be. And that's why those three, you know, I think should be broken out. Um, but the G is something for another time that we would love to see more focus on, if you might be. Excellent. I can see the next event being uh, uh, designed already. So uh, any last words from anyone else before we bring this to a close? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add that, you know, to your point about, you know, backlash on the conservative side, how to avoid wokeism, you know, irrespective of what your, your personal views are, a lot of what's being driven is, is client focused. So our clients are telling us, you know, you need to invest, you know, with an ESG perspective in mind. And whether I agree with it or not, it's good business. So, you know, and I, and I think that's the way things get done. You know, market forces are such that, you know, people have come to the conclusion that more diverse organizations generally function better. And if your clients are telling you, you need to be mindful of that, we then go to our clients and, our, and tell them, you know, look, you need to be mindful of that. So I think inevitably, you know, the sort of market forces in the end will probably drive this. And, and I think that's for the good.
I think I, I, I agree with that, actually. I think the bus has left. So I think that there might be a backlash of some people pushing against E, S and G in, in different ways. And maybe the bus is moving too slowly, but it's not going to it's not going to go backwards. So, um, you know, and eventually those people will leave or they will or, or, or they will convert. So I, I do think we're progressing too slowly, but I don't think that the backlash is going to stop that progression. That's a wonderful note to end on. Anyone else? Last comments? No? Nope? Okay. So um, apologies to those of you whose questions we couldn't get to, but I really, really appreciate the, uh, the enthusiasm and, and the volume of questions that have been uh, put up. And uh, thank you very much to the panel. Uh, this has been a rich, diverse, and illuminating conversation. I certainly learned much. So thank you again, and until next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.